Welcome to the Strength Culture Podcast. I hear him chat to the noise, move too quick, can't stop for the talking. I hear him chat with the boys, man so tough, but must keep caution. This this conversation is funny how it comes it it comes full circle because I have followed you personally probably since about 2008 when I got into CrossFit. So mm-hmm. my ex- my first exposure to you, which I don't even and and you, I'm sure we'll go into this was like in my opinion golden era sort of crossfit years um like late like early 2010s late 2000s um that was my first exposure to you and your content um because i know at the time you were very involved in the building of the crossfit brand and sort of their social media and what they were presenting i know you did a lot of the gymnastics um body weight, calisthenics, and you had some other things too that I think you were heavily involved in. And when I got into CrossFit, I came from a baseball background. So I didn't really come from a big strength training background, like a football player or somebody like that would come from. So I had like very little experience in the weight room. So when I got into CrossFit, one, not only did I not really have any weight training experience, so learning things like snatches and clean and jerks and deadlifts and even squats and stuff were very foreign to me. Mm-hmm. But because of the asymmetric, the, as, the asymmetries of being a very one-directional uh, sport athlete, um, the barbell did not agree with me at the time. So I really excelled and really enjoyed the sort of bodyweight gymnastics aspect of CrossFit as well as nice. the endurance stuff. And so that's why I got a lot of exposure to your content. Interesting. So that, yeah. So that was my first exposure. And then... My buddy Chris, um, who works uh, with Move Lift Live in Miami, mm-hmm. uh, he obviously you know Chris, and then Chris Espinal, Espinal, correct. And then I did through Chris. I also met Daryl, and then you also know Daryl as well. Yeah. And so then just and I told both of them like, man, I would love to get Carl on, and they both they both were like, well, just let me know because. I'll, you know, we'll link you up and Easy. you and I had some brief interaction, but finally we, we got it done. And so that's, that's how we got here. But that is very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. I mean, I haven't talked about strength and conditioning or fitness in a while. So maybe I'm out of my league, but, uh, <laughs> t- t- <laughs> like, uh take, take me, take me places, you know? Yeah. So I guess first we we probably should just introduce who you are for those who don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe just give a brief introduction. I again, I know that your your history within this realm of fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could be fitness coaching, you know, yeah. mentoring, kind of that whole realm. But I know it's very extensive. So if you just want to give either the most brief or most detailed version of like kind of who you are and where you've been and how and where you are now. And then we can kind of go from there, I think, would be a good way to start it. Yeah, let me let me try to do a brief description. M- my name is Carl Powley, um, born in the U.S., Swedish parents, grew up in Spain, so kind of multicultural, multilingual background. Um, I was a very scared kid growing up, so everything uh, terrified me. Uh, thankfully, my mom was this amazing support system that was able to guide me with uh, challenging behaviors. And one of the solutions that uh, she found to assisting me was um, sport, 
and specifically gymnastics, which is something that my my dad used to do when he was young. And in gymnastics, I found myself, I, I just was able to realize that I had some kind of control over how I did things. And in changing my behavior through my body, I was able to change my mind and thus change my emotional state. And in changing my emotional state, uh, I was able to see the world slightly different, um, moreover, just feel different. And in, in the case of gymnastics, I just felt better. So gymnastics was this savior of mine and a tool that has allowed me to, I guess, navigate life until this point. Fast forward to my later career in gymnastics. My, my goal was to go to the Olympics. I was trying to get onto the Spanish national team. And uh, for one, I wasn't uh, a Spanish citizen. I was only a resident. So I technically couldn't get on the Spanish team, but I could train in Spain. But there was nobody informing me or guiding me at the time. I just knew I loved gymnastics and I wanted to be uh, the best, but I, I I fell short of making it to the Olympics. And after that, I was just um, completely disappointed in myself and I just felt like a complete failure. But I found uh, action sports, specifically snowboarding and wakeboarding. And that's when this like light bulb moment uh, happened where I realized that everything that I had learned in gymnastics was transferable to these other sports. Furthermore, the way that gymnastics had uh, defined the movement for me and training uh, wasn't necessarily the only way that you could do things in all types of ways, that there wasn't uh, one style that was the right style. And this is something that I learned uh, trying to do a backflip on my uh, wakeboard while wakeboarding one day and realizing that I was uh, breaking all the rules of gymnastics, but everybody that was in the boat watching me was excited to see me do this thing. And they thought it was the coolest thing ever. And the uh, same thing happened um, on the mountains when snowboarding, I would do moves that broke all rules and technical uh, I, I guess, a foundation in gymnastics, but that worked really well on the mountain and with the snowboard and just allowed me to perform at a high level, but without doing it the way that I thought was the right way. And that was the inception or beginning of this idea of freestyle being a thing that uh, we should be able to express ourselves in an infinite number of ways. And in the expression of uh, all these styles, finding ways that work for us and starting to tinker with that or experimenting with that. And then those experiments leading to uh, learning something, getting some information, integrating that information, and then eventually transcending or growing into the next level. So this is where my whole idea of uh, trying to help people or assist people and seeing that uh, movement is... Uh, this constant state of adaptation became the foundation of, of everything that I did. And this, of course, translating not only into the gym, but also into sport and mind and one's emotional state. Fast forward to 2014. Now I've, uh, I studied environmental science. I specialized in genetic engineering, uh, uh -huh. ended up, uh, yeah, diving into the world of uh, marine biology 
but then got uh, sidetracked, uh, becoming a personal trainer, coaching gymnastics, and then CrossFit appearing, and then all these worlds kind of just colliding, and me getting to a point where I was starting to share content like uh, we were talking about earlier, maybe off air now. I don't know if we're <laughs> we were recording when I yeah when we were this. we were recording yeah okay well yeah so uh, yeah starting to create content for the CrossFit Journal then. Uh, collaborating with other um, subject matter experts within the CrossFit space, and then uh, eventually producing content through my channel, which at the time was Gymnastics Wad, and then That's YouTube right. and social media coming around and, and that kind of uh, amplifying things. Anyways, 2014, I released my book, Freestyle. Uh, Freestyle was my thesis on movement uh, dedicated to the CrossFit practitioner and uh and that did well it became a new york times bestseller which was very exciting for about 90 seconds <laughs> and and uh after that what i did was i i shifted gear slightly and i went into uh instead of just talking about movement talking about emotional development and emotional fitness applied to performance and i did that for a while kind of in the you know, background where, you know, not a lot of people were paying attention. And now I have entered into a new phase of my, um, I guess, professional expression where I am managing, representing and doing creative business development with athletes, specifically right now, breakers, breakdancers, uh, who are looking to qualify for the first uh, Olympic Games that uh, breaking will debut at which will be in paris of 2024 so that's wow. uh kind of where i'm at <laughs> okay yeah yeah that's i actually didn't i didn't realize it was that extensive but of course unless you really know somebody you're not going to know all of that information but i didn't realize wow so you heavily rooted in sport and then went into more education which was nearly unrelated <laughs> and then back into sport and training through, were you going to university and you just needed to, a job or how did you go from university and, and doing something like marine biology and environmental studies and then going back into training? How did, how did that happen? Yeah. So, uh, when I was 18, of course I, I graduated from high school, I was still doing gymnastics, but I had the hunch that I was going to be retiring or quitting gymnastics that I wasn't going to go all the way. Um, so when I got into, uh, when I was graduating high school, actually, uh, um, a friend of mine, my, my sister's, my older sister, uh, came around and he was an environmental scientist and he was telling me these amazing stories of him being on a ship, uh, traveling from the U S all the way across to Spain where, uh, with, uh, robotics designed by NASA, they were, uh, putting in fiber optic cables on the uh, Atlantic Ocean uh, sea bed. And uh, I thought this was like the coolest thing ever. And then he said, yeah. And then on my time off, I'm, I'm just up in the mountains snowboarding. And then when I arrive in Spain, I go windsurfing and I'm like, environmental science. That's, that's what I, that's what I need to study because that's exactly what I want to do with my life. I wanted to travel, have a little adventure and then, you know, do these fun things. So I got into environmental science and I thought that's that's what I was going to do. And then I, I basically just tried to follow the trends. And um, 
I started university in uh, the year 2000, and that's when the human genome was uh, being completely uh, uh, revealed and they had figured it out. So uh, genetics was was this like big thing. So there was a big push around genetics. And then I realized, wait a second, I can't I can't focus for a second. Like, what am I doing in a lab with a lab coat? Like, oh, you know, yeah. it made no sense. So uh, that's when I started exploring taking this uh this other path which was marine biology and um thanks to my sister and my older brother who had already gone through school they they taught me how to navigate school and they said look you're you're in this program that's a five-year program but you can finish it quicker so i managed to finish it in three and a half years uh and i took that uh year and a half that i had uh, left to go explore. And my exploration was coming to the U S and when I came to the U S I was doing some, uh, just volunteer work, uh, specifically at the Marine Mammal Center here in uh, the Bay area where I am in Sausalito in the Marine Headlands. And, uh, because I wasn't making any money, I, I needed a job. And the job that I took was, uh, coaching gymnastics. So that's kind of how I fell back. into, uh, coaching, uh, out of my gymnastics career, but it all stemmed from me exploring this environmental science thing. Oh, that's, that's really fascinating because, um, yeah, I, I just, it's, it's funny how those transitions occur. Like, how did you, how did you deal with sort of, I mean, do you, you don't technically do anything with the degree now, do you, did you ever do no, anything I didn't, with I didn't, No, I didn't even pick up the diploma. In fact, last <laughs> Christmas when I was in Spain, I, uh, yeah, I told everybody, I'm like, I, I graduated, I have my thing, but I never picked up the diploma. So we, we actually called the university almost 20 years later or whatever, and said, do you still have the diploma? They're like, yeah, we have it here on, on, on file. Come, come over whatever you want. It's, you know, 18, oh 18 years ago or whatever, but uh, you can still pick it up. How, like I'm now I'm just, I think most people would lose their minds. Like, I, I feel like, how did you have the confidence to be able to just kind of go with it and pivot? Like, like what was coming? Because I feel like people would be so invested into like they'd just be it's just be such a huge investment bias that they would just almost feel forced to go the route that they studied because they you know they invested time and money into learning something how do you how did you manage undertaking something like going to university and getting a degree like that and then just not even just kind of went a totally different route like how, how did you manage that how did you deal with that without did you freak out at one point where you kind of like oh man i feel like i have to use this thing that i learned or no, maybe I'm just a spoiled brat or something. I don't know, or an idiot. Uh, or an idiot. My, my 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 parents paid for all of my schooling, uh, but the the cost of me going to school for five years was uh, three thousand four hundred euros or something like that for five years. Yeah. Oh. Wow. And this is okay. at one of the the best universities in Spain. So okay. uh, it's sc schooling, when it comes to the financial investment in a country like Spain, is very different than in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, people don't really go broke uh, going to school. That's, so, that's probably good. In, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for one, <laughs> my parents had gifted me this thing, which my, I don't take for granted. In fact, everything that my parents do for me is 
is something that I, uh, you know, I like almost refuse to accept any help. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I have to say that, that, that financial burden was not there, but I had invested a lot of time, but I didn't feel like what I had learned in school was what I had to do with my life. I've never felt like that which I'm learning or what I'm curious about is that which I actually have to do uh, for work, so to speak. It's just, right. it's just knowledge that I think gives me perspective. Yeah, like and that. then I'm just very curious. I'm curious. Like I want to know things and things that I I see that I find, I mean, for the lack of better words, like if I see something that's cool, I'm like, I'm curious about the coolness of it. Right. And one thing that I've discovered is that this thing that we perceive to be really cool or special, especially when it comes to human expression, is um, is backed or supported by a shit ton of work and uh, deliberate practice. And that requires one to become uh somebody else in order to achieve or produce those results and the more i've allowed myself to see the back end of that which is beautiful or that which is excellent or that which is unique um uh yeah the more excited i get about this idea of personal development and the exploration of the inner workings and how when we're living in this place of you know infinite knowledge that exists within us, uh, we can find certain things that translate into very practical uh, expressions or solutions uh, that may you know, solve people's problems or assist them in some way. And uh, the exploration of that is very exciting. And I was never, I was never concerned about the path. I just did what felt right. And I've always pivoted when I felt like I had arrived at a place of completion. And we can talk about what that means if you want. Yeah. I mean, I want, I know that. So just to backtrack a little bit, because I know that a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this, um, will obviously have exposure to CrossFit, what mm -hmm. it's, what it's meant to fitness as a whole, or just movement. Right. Cause I really just view fitness as as movement. That's all it really is. And we obviously have many different modalities and ways of expressing that movement. And then obviously targeting maybe very specific, um, you know, biological adaptations that we want to pursue or, 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 or physiological, but, um, you now freestyle connection was, is your company, correct? And was that, yeah. and that was sort of, I assume that was all kind of in place and connected to your first book, which you said was your thesis on movement mm -hmm. for those who don't know, because I'm sure there will be people who do, but for those who don't know, can you kind of go into, <laughs> obviously you wrote a book on it, but can you go into a, a, a brief synopsis of, of your view on movement and, and what is it and what does it mean to you and, you know, maybe kind of explain that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there's many ways of tackling it, but my, my first objective was to try to create a universal language that 
allowed anybody who was interested in moving for specific purposes, mostly through my book, I talk about CrossFit, of course, or functional fitness, uh, just for legal purposes. Um, yeah. I was just trying to create a language for people. And it was based off this framework that I called position, movement, and purpose. And it's something that I just basically wrote on a napkin or on a piece of paper on my way to teaching a workshop because I needed something to talk about on a whiteboard, which they had asked me to do. And I'm like, I don't give lectures. I just show you how to do these like very basic movements. Uh, but if you want me to do a lecture, I need something. So I just wrote position, movement, purpose. And the reason was because in gymnastics, you always talk about body position. Uh, the changes of body position from one shape to another is the movement. And then the purpose is the reason. So uh, that was the context, so to speak. So uh, my thesis was that you can learn to speak the language of movement from this universal perspective, and you can root it in uh, seeing uh, movement from those three angles, from the position place, which is something that is static, from the motion, which is the change of positions, and then from the context, which is the purpose. And when you can do that, and you can apply that um, to what you're trying to pursue, uh, now you start to receive some feedback. And that feedback informs uh, the language that you speak. So if I say we're talking about the language of movement, maybe your specific language is weightlifting. Maybe it's CrossFit. Maybe it's gymnastics. And this was the goal. The goal was to create a universal uh, foundation that was relatable and applicable to everything that was uh, specific. And if I could create that connection from a movement perspective now, what I believe was uh, physical therapists could talk to doctors, doctors could talk to patients, patients right? They, like now everybody was speaking the same language. And if we could start there, then uh, solving problems would uh, get a little easier. Furthermore, I believe that when you understand the language of movement, uh, you can expedite the progression uh, process. And this is where uh, another objective was to be able to self-teach, become more autonomous. And the premise of that, I always explain from this place of uh, the body uh, moving and us noticing the movement and in noticing what works best, being able to make decisions accordingly. In other words, realize that we are not the creators of anything. We are simply the observers. Mm. And when you become uh, uh, an observer that uh, can simply accept and respect what the body is doing for what it's doing, uh, you can better create um, applications that serve a unique purpose. And I, if that's too vague, I'm happy to get very specific about it. No, I actually want to kind of, I, I want to go into the autonomy a little bit and, and maybe go into your approach into getting people to be a little bit more autonomous because in order to, for that to happen, people have to become more self-aware. Mm -hmm. But how do you make somebody more self-aware, right? Because I think the yeah. paradox of self-awareness <laughs> is that you don't know that you're self-aware. 
So like, how do you make that transition people? Cause like, for instance, what's the, like, when I look at things, I, I kind of look at things similarly, what's the problem you're trying to solve. Right. So for instance, as a coach, I find that there's obviously a lot of value in initial creating and setting a system or a model or a set of rules that someone must follow to basically fast track the idea to per- the purpose of something. Right. But at some point, the individuals need to understand how to sort of break away from that model and take more of the, the, the principles and be able to apply it to themselves a little bit more individually than just following a set of rules for the sake of following a set of rules. So like the reason I guess I'm, I want to talk about that is because I, I, there's a, there's a big push for something that's, I think is great right now, which is what people are kind of coining as like movement optimism, right? So when we look at technique, quote unquote, as an example, and now that technique can be um, weightlifting technique. So whether it's your technique in back squatting, front squat, or just squatting in general, or maybe uh, the, the Olympic lifts, like a snatch or clean and jerk, or maybe it's powerlifting, right? Like a bench press or a squat or a deadlift. And there's um, various broadly accepted techniques but then I think as you go higher and higher and higher up or the sort of totem pole of achievement in terms of individuality and sport, you see a lot of rules being broken, right? Mm-hmm. So then you see this sort of argument between, um, you know, you, well, we, we need to teach movements this way, but there's a certain point where the best of the best typically break those rules and then the argument becomes this philosophical discussion about how much individual individuality do we allow and then how much do we not allow? And like then bl- lines get blurred between like what's good technique and what's bad technique. And, and you know, it, it just I think it, the concept gets broader and broader kind of the more you go down the rabbit hole. Um, and I think like one of the most the hardest things to do. Is for instance, I'll give a, a little bit deeper an example. So many years ago, I worked more in physical therapy, less so much in strength and conditioning directly, like from a performance perspective. So it was mostly like very extreme forms of physical therapy, working with like stroke patients, car accidents, but also just some general pop. It was a cash, a cash based practice. Um, none of which is really relevant, but what I saw happen with that business is the, the owner of the business was a very, very, very good therapist and a very good manual therapist. But he ran into the issue of getting... What would happen is people would come and they would only want to see him. They wouldn't want to see the other therapist because they had such a good experience with him and how good he was. But he, he struggled a little bit with, with sort of getting other people to duplicate what made him individually great and also unique Hmm. right so i'm trying to i don't want to lose my thought process because like autonomy and like teaching somebody how to become self-aware i think is probably the most important step in sort of like a coaching mentor relationship um but i think it's the hardest i -hmm. think it's the hardest but i think it's also where people will start to find the most success in whatever endeavor it is so for me my number one goal as a coach like and as a business owner for my trainers is to think more like me, but not be me, obviously, mm-hmm. like be able to confront problems and address them, 
in real time, but not based off of a subset of rules, but based on observation, experience, obviously still knowing the rules, maybe still know, like having the education and, and things that they're going to have, but, but being able to actually observe what's in front of them and, and act and respond based on that versus just having sort of a preset idea of, oh, this is what I was taught. Like, because we're, as human beings, we're an open loop system. Right, we're constantly being fed information, and that system, that loop never closes. We're not like machines, even though a lot of what we do in this industry and field is taught like that. Like we're a machines. Like there's an input, and you put that input in, you're gonna get an you're gonna get an output. And there's a lot of talk around optimal and this and that, but the truth is, it's not really the case because there's just we have so many influences. And so, it, my number one goal is my clients. I want them to become self sufficient. I feel like as a coach and as a trainer, if my clients don't become self-sufficient, I have not personally done my job correctly. And mm-hmm. same thing for my trainers. At some point, they need to become self-sufficient and have confidence in that ability. Um, and on both ends of the spectrum, like I want my clients to be able to not need me anymore. They need to be able to leave and they need to be able to be a little bit more aware um, and, and responsible over the process. So you 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 sort of pass on some of the responsibility back onto the person, but in a way that it's obviously successful. Right. So um, maybe you can go into a little bit, cause I know like I, and, and maybe you can, that will lead us into a bit of what did you coin the term? Was it emotional fitness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emotional yeah. fitness. Yeah. I, I hear, I hear the, um, the sentiment of uh, yeah. Working yourself out of a job. Right. It's kind of like if you do a great job, yeah, you're no, nobody's going to need your services necessarily. Right. But there's always going to be more people and you're going to evolve. And thus, uh, there's this like evergreen space to grow. And I think that's the beauty of mastery. And mastery comes from a place, I believe, of this infinite pursuit of um, understanding that comes from knowledge placed into context, which is simply taking unique problems and using what you know to to solve them or uh, even just describe them. So I think that I, I kind of hear that sentiment and I and yeah. I love it. Um, where would you like for me to take this um, autonomy? Would you like for me to take it? Uh, yeah. How how would you like for me to tackle this a question? I guess. Yeah, maybe start there, I guess. I guess let, let me ref- let me give a little bit more experience. So I think that there's sort of phases that happen. If we look at let's just t- let's just say I movement. got you. I got yeah. you. Okay. okay. Yeah. Let, let me, yeah. Okay. I, I just needed a little because there's everything that we're talking about right now, anybody listening, this can feel a little abstract, a little esoteric, and kind of like, will you guys get to the point already? Will you just like tell us what the steps are and like what do you actually do? Uh, so just allow yourself to just go for the ride. Okay, <laughs> We're going to be abstract in some concepts, but we can bring it home um, and apply it to specific examples if needed. And maybe that's something that you can help me get to. But this is how I think about it. If everything is a progression, and keep in mind, I'm making all this shit up, right? It's just my way of looking at the world. We are. Uh, totally. So... <laughs> It's always funny to talk about these things, but I, I think they're they're really helpful because they allow you to contrast with what you know, uh, 
compare and then maybe uh, re reorganize. So the way that I think about it is like this. If everything is a progression, we go through three stages. We go through a natural progression, a formal progression, and then we go through a creative progression. Mm. And this is something that is not linear in nature, but rather circular. So uh, the natural progression for anything is just doing. You just do things and you naturally adapt to the doing. And of course, the doing is informed by the context in which you're doing it. Now, if we just take this to sport or some kind of physical fitness practice, uh, you're going to first just try to play the game. Let's say you're playing soccer or football or baseball or any other sport. You're just going to try to play the game. And your expression of trying to play the game is, for one, teaching you the rules. Two, it shows you how the rules and standards um, inform your behavior within that game. And then uh, on top of that, it tells you uh, what you need to develop, techniques that allow you to maximize your performance within that sport. But it all starts with this natural progression. You just show up, you just do the thing, and then you start to learn. Like That's stage one. Then eventually you get into this formal progression. And formal progression is now what we could call deliberate practice. And uh, this is when you start to follow uh, the guidance of a coach or you start to learn a technique. You start to learn specific ways of expressing yourself within a certain environment, within a certain situation, within a certain context. And this is the most uh, kind of rigid part of the game. But once you've played it enough, once you've done the things that uh, we could call process-driven, uh, that produces the outcomes that you seek, all of a sudden you get to a place where um, now you need to break free from that universal prescription into an individualized prescription. And this is simply uh, me saying that you have to do things your way. And this is you finding your style, finding your way, uh, uh, creating something that is unique to you, but is highly um, aligned with uh, the place that you come from. And this is where you get into the creative progression. And the creative progression is simply uh, a higher level of natural progression. And it requires you to be aware of how you naturally express yourself within a formalized way of doing things that allows you to uh, realize that your body, maybe your mind, your emotional state um, is asking you to do it slightly different and to notice whether that unique expression, your expression is actually producing the results uh, that you seek and need. And when you can see that now, you basically come full circle. So you've gone through the natural progression, formal progression, where you learn some things that somebody has taught you. Then you go into the creative where you're kind of self-teaching. You're more autonomous. You're doing it your way. And now you return back to the natural and you continue to climb this. It becomes like a spiral, spiral staircase where you're just climbing up and up and up and up. So you're just iterating on the same process. And the beauty of this is that let's say you're climbing up the spiral staircase of baseball. At any point in time, you can actually take this bridge to football. You could take this bridge to weightlifting. You could take this bridge over. And um, depending on your 
in, I would say, relationship to how you engage in this process. It doesn't matter if the bridge takes you all the way back down to the bottom of the totem pole of this new uh, spiral staircase. Because you have the previous knowledge, you have now included and transcended, and it allows you to climb the spiral staircase way faster. And the speed of progression is what we could call high-level performance. Like when you see an elite athlete learning something outside of their sport, you you can't help but be but be mesmerized because you're like, wait, how are you picking this up so quickly? How do you understand something that you've never done before? Yeah. Well, because I was part of this this process, yeah. and I think that um, gives us two things here. One, it gives us uh, a general picture of what progression looks like, what adaptation and growth looks like, and two, uh, our relationship to that and how it. Um, can translate into this more pragmatic, mechanical expression of practice. I had a bunch of light bulbs go off listening to you describe that because now before, did you, is this something that you read somewhere, picked up somewhere, or was this sort of just something that you came this to? This is just how I think about it. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard it more perfectly because I mean, even if I mean, and this is really cannot even just not even sport. This can be applied to anything, right? Like yeah, this is this, cooking, this is every music. This is just general. Yeah. Yeah. So because it's like, how do you start? You start by doing, and then you learn. So you get some formal instruction, and then the creative aspect kicks in, and then that loops back around, and it's an evolving process that will continue to evolve as long as you continue to do it generally. And actually, this is something I want to touch on because I, I do think that cannot always be the case for people. So I want to maybe talk to you about that first. People will get hung up in the middle of these processes somewhere and they start to sort of reject the process because they feel like the step they're on maybe doesn't evolve or maybe they attach themselves too much to one specific part. Like as an example, right? Um, You get somebody in the gym. (laughs) Man, I just think the good thing about this is this literally can apply to anything. So, I, what maybe I'm trying to think of the best way to frame this. So you, let's just say, as an example, you get somebody who comes to the gym first time in the gym, they come in, they just kind of start doing things, right? Let's just say it's a commercial gym or like a rec center type of gym. They come in, they see machines, they hop on there, they start doing some things. They get familiar with the process. They kind of, Oh, you know, the first time ever they hop on this little machine, it's a pec deck. They do it. They feel their pecs. They go, Oh, that's what that's for. Through that, generally, the next process is, for the most part, some people will start to reach for some sort of formal instruction. So they get into the gym, they get a little comfortable with the gym, then they hire a personal trainer, they get a little bit of more formal instruction, they go through that process, they go maybe 12 weeks with a personal trainer, and then they kind of get the structure, they get a little bit more guidance, and then they get back into the gym on their own, and now they're doing the same thing they were doing before, within a subset of rules, which obviously gives them a little bit more structure and guidance on what they're doing, but now they can kind of be a little bit more creative with it in terms of, you know, that's when you can get into where does the creative aspect come in programming? What kind of exercises do you select? Why do you select them? Blah, blah, blah. But where, how do you, what is your advice maybe for people who get hung up on any one of these processes, because I think we're, and and maybe let me, let me, I think where I personally see, you know, I'll just use my own bias and experience is people get hung up 
in between the formal and creative. So an example I'll give is, again, I think a nice another parallel for a lot of people who probably can picture this, at least for my audience, weightlifting, right? Mm-hmm. You get into weightlifting, you learn your, you know, you, you pick up a barbell or a PVC pipe or whatever, depending on who, you, who your coach is, and you start just playing with the movements. You start sort of learning the different movements. And then you get some formal coaching. Um, and even if I think if you look at the progression of athletes, because... You know, you'll look at maybe if like if you I think a good example is if you look like the Chinese national teams, you can see a lot of progression from because they post a lot of these are what the kids do. These are sort of sort of what of our intermediate or regional athletes look like. And here's what our national team does. Mm -hmm. And it is very interesting to see how. For the kids, there is a lot of natural sort of general preparation. They're not just doing weightlifting. A lot of times Mm -hmm. they will also do gymnastics-based stuff. They'll do um, plyometric stuff, running, sprinting, whatever. And then the intermediate athletes, they get more into the specifics, I think, of the lifts themselves, actually learning the snatch, actually learning the clean and jerk. You're going to see a lot of, I I guess you could say, um, generalized technique, right? And then you get to the national level where then you just say all the rules that these athletes kind of learned before can somewhat get broken. And you start to see a lot of individuality within the sport, but still within the rules, mm-hmm. right? Because depending on how you look at the rules, technically there are rules to the snatch and clean and jerk, but really at the end of the day, it's just two ways of getting the bar overhead. Yeah. It's just However like, you land, do that, land with the, land with your arms locked out. That's exactly. Like in the context of sport, that's it's a very specific movement, but it's a very generalized rule or outcome is how do you get it there? Right. And so, but again, I think you can see it with any sport. Like for instance, when I play baseball, you play T-ball, you start to learn coach pitch. You're just kind of playing, you get some general instruction, but probably the coaches at that level aren't really great coaches anyway. And then you get a little mm-hmm. bit higher up, you get a lot more instruction, but let's, you know, if you take something like batting as an example, mm-hmm. right, you kind of learn how to hit off a tee. Then you you kind of a soft pitch. And now then you really start getting into like coaching of parameters. Like you're going to get a coach and they teach everyone to hit the ball the same way. You got to totally. put your hands here. Your elbows got to be here. You got to do yeah. this. And then once you kind of actually look up into the semi-pro pro level, you start, you go, wait a second. Like all these things that I was taught on how to bat. If I look at every single baseball player approach the mound or approach the plate, not a single one of them bats the same exact way. Not one. Oh. There's not, there's not one. Thing. It's like, so it's, you can, I think no matter what your realm is or what you apply this to, you're going to see that same progression. You're going <laughs> to see this, like this, even as we talk, I'm kind of putting it together. Cause yeah, you, you do, you see the natural progression. Then you get a little bit more of the, the formality. Formalized, yep. And then you break the rules and it's the same with music, right? Music's another great example is like you start just jamming on an instrument. There's no rhyme or reason. You just pick something up, something that drew you in, whether it's drums, guitar, piano, whatever. And then you start to get some formal instruction. Mm-hmm. And then the real art of music comes when you start to break all the classical and formal rules. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get these different subsets of, of different music and the different cultures and the different, you know, um, what do you varieties and brands? Totally, you get like you, jo- you get like your yeah. genres, and then you get genres. The, what, exactly. Yeah, the way I mean that that, but that's what's so so cool about artistry, and I think embracing artistry in 
physical or human performance is the key to finding the tip of your spear, which is what I think everybody gets excited about. But this takes us back, and, and sorry if I, I I cut you off here, but I, I think this is what takes us back to your question, which is, you know, what what advice do you give or how do you think about those people who are attached to a certain thing uh, and now they can't move on? They got stuck in this kind of yeah. loop. I, I think that's what you were alluding to. Yeah, and, uh, I, yeah, I would say I think the transition that I personally experienced from an intermediate to a high level elite, if that's what the word you want to use, is the ability to break away from the formality, not break the rules, but break away from the formality of the, the coaching a mm -hmm. little bit and then develop their sort of own creative, you know, call it technique, call it what skill, call it execution, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. But that's the transition I see. And that's the block that I see for most people. They always stay intermediate. Like, how do you, yeah. How, yeah. Yeah. It, so it, it, com exactly it, it comes yeah. from, it comes from two places, places in my opinion, uh, deep pain or unconditional love. An example for unconditional love is when somebody who, you know, and you feel loves you unconditionally can say you have permission, whatever you do, uh, is is uh, always going to be good for me. And I, I just want you to do that. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, you get access to this whole new level of performance, which is something that I've always had coming from my family. There's never been, nobody has ever told me, I wish you did, or I, I, I hope you would go this way, or, you know, I gave you this, now you have to give me that. There was never any conditions. So for me, there was never any, fear there and although my like first memory is one of fear and pain the unconditional love has allowed me to just express myself in a unique way that apparently is interesting enough for someone like yourself to actually want to talk to me i mean that's yeah. that's pretty cool uh, and i've developed my own unique style and i think i see this in the best athletes the best executives the best um, yeah. art like everybody at some point and that's when it comes from the unconditional love place, which is what I think is the ideal, right? But for the most part, um, uh, these unique expressions or the ability to detach from something that no longer serves you or is producing the results that you need, it comes from a place of pain where you're in so much pain because you're either not reaching it or you're, you're actually getting damaged that you have no other option but to surrender. And this from like, you know, like a spiritual perspective, surrendering is just trusting the universe, having faith, yeah. wh whatever you want to call it. And the, what I, the way that I have logically kind of navigated this, because I'm like, fuck no, I'm not surrendering. I'm not going to just like let go. That's crazy, right? Yeah. But the way that I've thought about it is like this. Eventually, you need to quit. And what is quit? Quitting. Well, quitting is saying no to something. Right. If you're saying no to something, you're saying yes to something else. And maybe this relates to this, uh, I, what did you call it? Optimism, movement optimism or? Yeah, I, I think what you're seeing right now, and now again, I, I want to be careful here, but but movement let, me optimism. let me finish this thought and maybe we'll tie it in later. But uh, so, so the, 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 first, the first step is you have to choose to quit. Choosing to quit is saying no to one thing and yes to something else. 
Cool. Yes to something else is something that uh, is uh, your choice, uh, where you have full ownership, that is, uh, comes from you. Uh, so that's kind of the, the first goal. And we're going to get to how do you motivate this or how do you encourage this in a second. But I'm just going to share this concept. So quitting first. The second thing is you have to give up, right? Giving up, the word giving up is to gift up, like upward, something greater. And if you think about gifting, right, something that you are giving somebody else, anytime you give something to somebody else, it always feels good. When you do, like, when you oh, yeah. genuinely gift, like, that feels good. So, in some way, taking away from what you have, or maybe you bought something and gifting it, whether it's information, a, a present, whatever it may be, that feels good. And when you can give, give yourself up, gift up to something bigger, whether you know what that bigger thing is or not, you're going to have this feeling of goodness. So you've quit, you've said yes to something, you've been deliberate, you have full ownership, and then you're going to have a feeling of goodness because you're gifting up. I'm, I'm going to let go of this thing by saying yes to this other thing. And that's the gift that I'm giving myself. And that feels good. And then that eventually allows you to simply uh, 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 notice that this feeling is eliciting a new expression, a new way of doing things. And you've probably seen this in people. Wow, you feel different today. You sound different. You look different. You're moving different. When you become aware of that, either just because of how you're doing things or what people are telling you, that's the moment you can choose to surrender and trust that the decision that you've made is actually exactly what you had to do to get this new need that you have uh, that you had met, and that producing these these results. So now we know like what leads to that. The way to encourage this um, comes from different places, but I I think it it starts with um, uh, encouraging people to be autonomous, which is just saying. Do your thing. You have full permission to do your thing. You can continue to do this thing, which seems like insanity and you're totally attached. Eventually, you're going to run into a place of pain. When you run into that place, allow yourself to become aware and then uh, realize how you make choices around it. Just encourage autonomy. And we can talk about the difference between pain and discomfort. Yeah. Right? Pain is if you uh, are addicted to something, you continue to do it. It's harming you. Yeah. Discomfort is when you choose to not do the thing that uh, uh, creates that pain. And now you're in discomfort because you've moved away from that pain. But that one produces something that is healing. One is disease. The other one is health. Uh, another way to look at it is as um, when you move into a place of discomfort, as you move away from something that is causing you pain, that it's making you more whole. Yeah. So encouraging autonomy. Second of all, uh, encouraging mastery and mastery being the um, curiosity and willingness to continue to show up in a way that um, doesn't attach you to the outcome that that thing is producing. And we can talk about how to uh, work with this idea of process versus outcome in a second. 
So mastery and realizing that there's never a destination. You're never going to arrive. And even when you arrive at the goal that you originally had, you will already be something different. Thus, the goal and the arrival will never feel like the inception of the idea of there where you want it to go. Right. So th that's the fucking problem and the paradox of being alive is that you're never going to feel or get the thing that you want because you only get it the moment you plant the seed or you notice that you, there's a need that you have. Once you yeah. get there, it's kind of like, oh, well, I, I was already that which I need to be to get here. Thus, um, it doesn't feel that way. That's why I said That's, like becoming a New York oh. Times bestseller, right? It just lasted 90 seconds. It's like, oh, fuck. I was already a New York Times bestseller before they told me I was a New York Times bestseller. Thus, being a New York Times bestseller means nothing. <laughs> right? it's, it's, like like a, it's like a phoenix burns ashes re the process just restarts constantly yeah. and then uh some people because may be like it's, it, you're thinking so what's the point you know what's the point well the oh. point is is to just acknowledge that this is the process and that allowing you to see beauty and this allows us to go into this place that's a little bit more fluffy or whatever but uh, I, we're just kind of get to encouragement so autonomy mastery and then finally purpose and purpose is your specific reason for doing something and here you don't even have to articulate it uh, clearly in words. You just have to know what it feels like. Yeah. And when you know what it feels like, you can always find that feeling. Example, yesterday uh, was my uh, wedding anniversary and my wife and I uh, were hanging out and uh, we've gone through a lot of uh, challenging times over the last uh, decade and uh, of course, that puts strain on our relationship. But yesterday was this like perfect day. It was just like this perfect day. And I just said, you know, let's bottle this up. Let's like bottle this feeling up, meaning let's remember this. Yeah. And let's sip on this a little bit anytime we need it. Right. It's like it's our little elixir, you know, like yeah. Yeah. It, it, this is good thing. And, and to remember that that always exists. And if we can make our effort in finding that thing that makes us feel the most alive or connected or productive or whatever it is that we really like feel um strongly about then we'll have purpose yeah. right and then finally if you can align the purpose which is this feeling with a specific mission or task now you become a meaningful contributor to society. You become a practical individual. Now you can say, I'm going to take on the role of uh, performance coach, physical training coach, whatever coach, uh, writer, uh, painter, right? Now you can take on the role and that becomes a very clear mission. And that's cool. And, and the other thing is that that's temporary because if you are an autonomous person, you're eventually going to transcend. Yeah. So that's one side. Um, this led a little bit to me alluding to this idea of process over outcome. But um, yeah, uh, take me wherever you, you want to take. Yeah, me. let's let's. Well, I don't want to. I, I want to go to process versus outcome. But I just it's I got like goosebumps because when you talked about the point in time at which you make a goal, you put the goal here. But the second you leave that point in time, you're now you're constantly changing. So by the time that you get around to whatever that goal was, 
everything is more or less shifted and changes because you're not the same person that you were at that exact point in time that you made the goal. Now it's exactly. changed because you've and, changed and, the yeah. person you are. Yeah. An- another way to think about it is that in this moment, you are who you are. And because that is your current reality, um, your feeling about that is uh, to some degree neutral. And if you have judgment on yourself, well, then it's negative, but, or maybe you're, you know, you're ego driven and it's maybe more positive, whatever it may be. But you're, you're just like, I just, this is who I am. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Th- that feeling is what you, you, you get when you arrive at the destination. Because you're already that thing that what you worked on initially when you set the goal, right? It's like, you're like uh, let's say you're overweight oh. and you want to be an athletic person. You choose in that moment, I'm going to behave. I'm going to develop habits. I'm going to have a lifestyle of the healthy athletic person. Yeah. So when all of a sudden you are that, maybe the, the, the your biggest problem is I have too much loose skin and it's chafing and now I have to have the surgery. But other than that, yeah like right yeah huh. yeah yeah wow yeah it's 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 really because it, well it is funny because if you actually look at like um sometimes it's like when you look at highly achieved individuals they have a moment right like if you think of michael jordan winning championship or whatever and it's like you there's a brief moment of like okay like crying and tears and and joy and whatever but it's like then when they get to the interview and they're interviewing a post game they're just kind of like oh time to get back to work and it's just like wait what <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what i mean like you just won a championship and you're you're getting ready to go to work out tonight and it's like yeah it's just like the process doesn't say it just starts back over for those people right they, yeah. like there isn't a destination it's a process and so mm-hmm. that process continues and so it's just like i think when if you listen to any great talk about it, it's sort of a bizarre thing for like normal people who feel like they haven't really achieved things to feel because they're like shouldn't you feel like way more you know like just more excited about this thing and like there it's it's there but it's not right they're mm-hmm. just kind of like uh, it's just another thing and you're just it's like i think it frustrates people right it's like um it can frustrate people that haven't really experienced that degree of achievement because they, they're like, what do you mean? Like, should, this should be like a celebration. And they're just kind of like, Oh, right back, just another right back to the cog. And we're just going to keep spinning around and we're just going to, we're moving on to the next thing. Yeah. So, just, yeah. I mean, you, know. you just reminded me of something, which is if we just take the basic building blocks of who we, we are, this like organic um, substrate that we have, like we have some elements and they're, rest- they're structured in a way that maybe uh, contains information. Now this is our genetic code and that genetic code, according to uh, our environment, uh, signals uh, to express certain uh, parts of our genome and thus producing these proteins that now create something, an expression, a structure, whatever it may be, right? Yeah. Uh, in order to make change at that level, it takes a hundred thousand to millions of years, right? So at base level, change is really slow. Yeah. Cool. So just becoming aware of that is powerful. And you're like, well, I have this lifetime uh, that's, uh, let's say, 75 years, 100 years, whatever it may be, hopefully yeah. 150 years, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, you're not going to make major genetic change unless we we uh, come in and do genetic engineering on you to some degree. Yeah. But then you have these 
habit-based changes, which um, within three days, you can change your physiology. Yeah. Right. And within 200, whatever the research says, 258 days, now you can make something that is habit based permanent, meaning that now you don't even have to think about it. You don't have to try to do it. You're you're it's it becomes something that's reflexive. So you can make change within 258 days. And that's pretty powerful to know. Furthermore, when you see something that affects you emotionally within one second, it can change your whole life. This is what we could call trauma or yeah. simply seeing something that you had never seen before and that has completely changed your perspective on reality. And I know this is going to sound kind of ridiculous or whatever, but let's say these UAPs, these UFOs that you know are kind of in the news where uh, all of a sudden they said, yeah, there is um, alien life that is uh, living here or it's uh, ancient life that's been around this whole time but we we haven't really spoken about it. And there is this technology. If we actually saw this and realized that this is a truth, I, I, and I have no clue what, what it is, but right. it's just an interesting mind game to play. Our whole reality would change within one second. Yeah. We could never go back. This is why, you know, psychedelic experiences are so powerful. This is why um, uh, having that moment where you win the trophy and then you cry because everything that you have gone through needs to now be recorded to some degree in your body, in your in your epigenetics in this case. Uh, that's our mechanism. Like if we are a machine, that's our mechanism for recording a moment in time that is going to now allow us to transcend and form the next step. That's why the Jordans of the world can have that moment, cry in the locker room, then do the press conference, say we're going to win the next season, whatever, right? Yeah. That's cool shit. And yeah, that's what we cool. do in coaching. We're always guiding people to that moment. And what I think is missing within the fitness industry, within the high performance industry, is a place where we can talk about the emotional side of things as uh, a, an essential component, not only for creating transitions and progression, but also for uh, um, informing, better informing our next step. And this leading to the ability to detach from something that has happened, whether it's bad or good. Yeah, that's... Uh... What do you, I mean, <laughs> let me just think of this whole, like, um, well, I don't want to lose our, our place on the, the process and outcome. Should we go ahead and just get to that? And then maybe yeah, let's can, get, I can come back to, cause I'm just thinking it. it's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation because what you're seeing a lot of right now is this sort of stoicism. Right. Of like, it's a huge movement right now. It's very popular. You know, it's obviously the philosophy has been around a very long time, but there's a big sort of push for like, don't be too emotional about things, be a little bit more collected, or at least maybe I'm misinterpreting it. Maybe just don't, you can be emotional, but don't let that emotion drive you too much. What would you say to that? And how is that? Because I guess. In the case, if you use the Michael Jordan example, because if he almost lets too much emotion drive the situation, then it's he just gets lost in that moment of like 
victory and celebration. And so he can't move on to the next thing, which is, well, now I have another season to, so how do you, how do you sort of balance the two or what do you think about the sort of the difference between the two? Like, what is that? And maybe we can go into that. Maybe that the process outcome probably maybe teaches us what that means exactly. But a lot of people would say, don't be too emotional or don't show too much emotional Totally. You know, totally. This this is what I believe. I believe that the same way um, like heart rate variability is a sign of health to some degree. I believe emotional variability is a sign of health as well. I would. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Most of us are simply not aware of uh, the changes in our emotions. Thus, we don't know how to work with them. Furthermore, most of us don't know what an emotion is. And somebody who I believe has defined it really nicely and has done a ton of research is uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. And basically, and I may be butchering this, but this is my interpretation of her definition, which is that an emotion is a construct in time that shows us, is priming the body and shows us uh, the world in a unique way. In other words, the brain, in addition to um, uh, telling the body uh, how to regulate, like what to do to regulate, it's also picking up information when we're dysregulated, that when it's um, uh, uh, picked up as feedback into the brain, it evokes an emotion to signal to our awareness that it's time to do something different. It's time to eat. It's time to have sex. It's time to do this, right? Right. And... Thus, Fight, run, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thus, making making our emotional state, our current state of being, a lens through which we see the world. Okay. And something that we know from uh, basic meditation or just basic human behavior is that everything that we do is based on trying to get a need met. So let's say uh, we have a moment where we're angry, an emotion of anger comes up. I'm like frustrated. Instead of uh, attaching ourselves to that anger, it's noticing that anger. Oh, shit, I'm angry right now. I have road rage. Yeah. And, then real and then realizing, wait, why am I angry right now? Mm. Oh, oh, you know what? I'm hungry. Yeah. I need to eat, <laughs> right? So right. all of a sudden, instead of seeing like, this motherfucker cut me off, this is how I'm seeing the world. It's kind of like, yeah, dude, you just cut me off and it kind of irritated me. But the reason I'm reacting this way is because I didn't have food. Thus, I'm depleted and I'm experiencing this emotion. But now I know how to act on this emotion in a way that makes me see the world different. So now yeah. I'm like, I forgive you for cutting me off. I, I wouldn't recommend you do that in the future, yeah. but I forgive you. Thus, I let go and I can just move on with my day and go and do the thing that I need to do. So yeah, I think that's that's probably the actual true message of stoicism is not necessarily ignoring your emotions or not displaying your emotions, which I think is what a lot of, especially young men right now, take it on as. It's like, oh, I need to be emotionless, more or less using it as a way to become more aware of why you're having that emotion, therefore driving the habits to maybe lessen the emotion or just experience or understand why you're having it. And therefore, you can change the habits of like, if you know, oh, yeah, like I'm hungry. Well, then the habit you would change is obviously to make sure that you're fed or you have like it's going to drive the behavior. So that way, like being able to experience it, but then move out of it because you've become aware of why you're experiencing it versus just being in it all the time. I would say I would agree with saying that, like, it's probably not healthy to never have emotion or to just always be in one emotion, but the ability to to move 
in and out of different emotions and experience them in that period of time, like you said, which then hopefully would drive an awareness as to why are you experiencing that emotion, which then you're going to pick up the, you know, the habits or decisions that led you to that point in time. Because to me, everything is a decision. Like every, your whole entire life is nothing but decision, 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 decision. And so therefore it allows you to make new decisions based on the information that you have because of that. Okay. That, Mm -hmm. that actually makes a lot of sense to be able to discern the difference because I think that is where people will say, well, you know, you shouldn't be too emotional or whatever, but it's like, what does that really mean? Right. And I think you made a good discernment between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think when you start to think about decisions and emotions and you uh, base them in time, there are certain things that are more urgent than others. So for example, I'm on TikTok the other day and I see uh, a veterinarian um, with, um, a German shepherd on its back and the German shepherd had his head up like this. And she was like pushing on the, on the throat, like on the neck. And basically what she was doing was extracting this toy that this uh, mm. animal had swallowed and saved the, the animal's life. And immediately in my head, I'm like, swipe. I don't want to see this. It, like, it was freaking me out, but it yeah. took me a second to like see it, pick up on what it was. And then I thought to myself, shit, I would do poorly in that moment because I would just panic and be like, "Panic, yeah, fucking dog is dying. Somebody do something, right? Yeah, yeah. But what's the difference is that veterinarian probably also felt something. Oh, shit, this dog is choking right now. We need to save this dog right now. Right. And instead of her succumbing to her emotions of panic, like, oh, no, this is bad. What do I do? She defaults to her training, which is your conditioning. And then becomes fully process oriented. I put the dog on their back. I put their head in this position. I put my thumbs here. I find the thing. I start to push up. If this happens, I do this. Now it's specific techniques. She's fully process oriented. And she's not focusing on what the animal is experiencing. She has empathy for it because she's acting on it. But she's not succumbing to the feelings of what is happening. And she's just doing the thing that's going to produce the outcome that is the best for everybody. Yeah. And this is based on this idea of empathy. And uh, Daniel Goleman Goleman talks about this in his book, um, uh, Emotional Intelligence, which is there are three types of empathy. And first and foremost, empathy is understanding what somebody else is experiencing. And there's also self-empathy, which is understanding what you're experiencing. That's a whole different thing. And that's part of the awareness piece. But the the first uh, level of empathy is uh, what we could call cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is simply being able to see that somebody is suffering or happy and just see it for what it is, not being attached to it. And I think a lot of people relate this to stoicism. They're like, I see the thing, but I'm not attached to it. So I feel it's nothing. Like acknowledgement. Yeah, it's just it's like, like acknowledgement. acknowledgement. Yeah. The problem with it, the, 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 the good thing about it is that it doesn't affect you anymore. Like somebody could be dying and you're like, I see that you're dying and I see everybody's sad, but it doesn't affect me. This is kind of what happens when you become desensitized. And what happens when you become desensitized? Well, now you're no longer connected. And Mm -hmm. something that uh, is imperative for our health is connection, connection to experience, people, process, whatever it may be, right? So cognitive empathy is really powerful and it can be step one for just being like, oh, that person is sad. That person is happy. That person, but, it, it doesn't get you to connect. The flip side of that, 
and this is the other type of empathy, is emotional empathy. And emotional empathy is what you experience when you watch a good movie. And the yeah. character goes through something, and if they are uh, suffering, you suffer with them, you cry with them, you succumb to their emotions. Yeah. Succumbing to somebody's emotions is amazing because now you're in it with them. Like that's amazing. The problem with it is that it doesn't lead to a new outcome. It right. just you just get caught in this vortex like, in this like arguing with a spouse a spouse comes home they're upset they're angry now you're upset now you're angry now you're both upset and angry and nothing's being solved totally and yeah. this is where compassionate empathy has to come into play which mm. is i see your hurt i see your happiness i feel it but it's not evoking an emotion and this is extremely important a feeling is the um uh cognitive or awareness of an emotion at uh, just a mental level and it has a narrative but it doesn't inform the body to react in a certain way mm. it's just something that has to do with awareness and that is what compassion uh, elicits it, it elicits the ability to have a feeling but that lives up here in a cooler fashion, a cooler mindset, and allows you to now act from the heart, from a place of connection, but without succumbing to the thing that um, got you to that place in the first place, which is somebody crying or somebody in distress or whatever it might be. When, when we can live in that state of uh, compassionate, uh, empathy with others and ourselves. Now we become solution conscious and we're fully connected and we're emotional beings. Mm. The problem is that living in that state of compassionate empathy takes some work and requires energy. And this is what a lot of people who they call like the, their emp empaths or sensitive individuals. I'm, I'm like a very sensitive individual um that likes to help and serve and like do the right thing you can run into what's called uh compassion fatigue and compassion fatigue is trying to always keep at bay the emotions from your feelings or your um your coolness so to speak and uh getting tired of that like trying to keep that separate constantly and this is where you have to break down. You have to have a moment where you think, fuck yeah, I did the thing or shit. Right? Yeah. Like, have that moment, but don't get caught in that moment. Stuck in it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the practice. Then that's why processes is so important. It's kind of like, okay, I did this set right now. I did what the program said. It didn't feel the way I wanted to. I feel like I'm going backwards. Shit, what is this? Don't worry, have the moment and then move on to the next thing. Just yeah. move on. That's Be in the game lesson. and just checking boxes, checking boxes. And now we're getting into process over outcome and we can yeah. talk about that. That's a, good, that's a good segue because I think that's where a lot of people get hung up. And and like to give some, just to give some context, like I'll, I'll give an example. So I had an athlete and I think this is like a, a huge sort of problem, if you will, that you see in this industry because people have an experience like that. And now all of a sudden, instead of just accepting it, being in it, and then moving on from it, it, it derails them because now they become heavily focused on that feeling 
or those feelings during that yeah. really acute amount of time. And now they use that to basically divert everything that they're doing. And it, it is a little, I don't want to say it's insane because it, maybe that can be a little insulting, but I think people understand what I mean by that. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't necessarily serve you because what I see, like for instance, is especially going from like a, a rehab world, which I existed in and now being in very much a performance world where I'm working with pro athletes, division one track athletes, football players, that kind of thing. There seems to be, and, I, and I'll say the difference between, you know, I, I don't want to say general population, but I have to like categorize in some fashion, right? Mm-hmm. So the difference between I see what I see with them and then general population clients is what they do with that moment. Right. So what I, what I find is that most of the time, high achieving athletes can have that moment. They understand it's part of the process. They're not going to go and change everything. They continue forward with the plan, but maybe they make some adjustments or accommodations to the process, but not in a way that they're totally doing a different thing. They just maybe start to change some habits or maybe through those habits, their perspective changes a little bit. Whereas a general population athlete, and, and I'll get to where, where the two I see diverge a little bit. Let's take a back injury, quote unquote, a back injury, right? I have an athlete who comes in here. He's incredibly strong, used to be a hockey player, smaller guy, weighs 150 pounds, you know, it was like five, what, five, three, five, four. So, you know, very uh, small leverages, but a very strong individual. I mean, we're talking like deadlifts four times body weight, squats three times body weight, benches two times body weight. Very, very strong. Insane. And um, he came in, he's going for a, you know, he's in a, a phase where he's doing one reps, hits a PR on his back squat, but injures his back on the rep. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And we'll just use injure as because as, I even think that can get a little tweaked it. You know, yeah. He tweaked his back. That's a good way to put it. And so his response initially was freak out, like, oh no. Right. And especially with like high performance people, when you're when you're used to performing at a very high level, I think any sort of perturbations can really throw you off acutely because you're going from a state of really high performance. Let's just call it 100%. We're now even operating at 90, 95% is not good enough for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So he tweaks his back and he's like, comes to me. He's kind of like, what do I, what should I do? Right. And I'm like, first of all, we're not going to freak out. We're not going to panic. Right. Come over here, do some movement, keep the hips moving, just keep things moving. Cause that's typically my approach in these situations. Let's just keep things moving and let's play things out. When's your next session? Oh, Thursday or whatever. Okay, cool. We're going to try to front squat instead of back squat and see how you do. Right. Mm-hmm. He comes in, his back's a little stiff. He's a little sore. He can front squat. He can front squat perfectly fine. We basically keep the plan 99% the same. We just make one tiny adjustment to the exercise. And it's not that I'm married to any particular exercise or anything like that. That has nothing to do with it. It's just that we have a plan. We have a goal. We have an outcome that is his. And I want to keep an going that direction as much as possible. And so we make a small adjustment. Three weeks later, his back squat's fine or his back's fine. Hits another PR or something crazy, right? Then you have another athlete, another, I won't even say an athlete, another client comes in, general pop, tweaks their back doing something. Don't even remember what it was. Then it's Cairo visits, PT visit. It's, it's, it's been like, it's, it's a catastrophe. And now they go from, 
this is the plan. This is the goal. This is the outcome. And now it's totally derailed. And they go from this place of, of what I would consider also performance because performance is always task. It's always t- relative to the task, right? Like how well do you execute a task? So like whether I'm talking about a general pop client or an athlete, they're both performers and they're operating at their highest level of performance. It's just, if we compare those levels of performance, it's not fair, but they're just yeah. different, but they take it and they, and they kind of go off on a different path. It's, a, it's that, that experience. It's like, it's, it's catastrophized in a way where it's like, Oh my God, it's the worst thing ever. And they're just unwilling to, you know, it's just a different route they take, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I think that you see that a lot in this field is pain is a very com- complex topic, but it's also a very easy selling point for people because everyone's experienced pain yeah. and no one wants to experience pain. And so, you know, you have these, you have some people that, you know, if you were to put it on a scale performance of like one to 10, I think more reasonable people, if somebody operating at a 10 and they tweak something or whatever, then you kind of bring them down to like seven, eight, nine but you keep going the way you want. And then you have the other ones who think they need to go all the way back to step one, which is like, mm-hmm. don't, you know, if, if my opinion is don't do anything, rest, pay, you know, whatever the, the extreme may be. But um, I just think it's interesting how, how, how you see it kind of play out differently. Um, you know, and, and obviously I think from a, there, there's so many parallels between like, physical and mental and mm-hmm. even emotional anyway right like i think that if you just think of training as applied stress i think it, yeah. how you learn to manage stress not only in training but in many other areas of your life become very different the perspective just changes on what that is but i, mean, I don't even remember where i was going with this at the point because you just had me thinking of like two different scenarios where you have a moment like that where yeah. some, but you I, have think we're, I, I think we were talking about the attachment to uh, an emotional moment, which could be yeah. you tweak your back, back squatting. Yeah, wh- yeah. Like, how do you respond versus react? Yeah. And I think that, that uh, the old motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, used to tell this story or say this thing, which is an analogy saying, if you take medicine and you react to the medicine, that medicine is not good for you. If you take medicine and you respond to the medicine, the medicine is good for you. So uh, if you tweak your back doing a one rep max or whatever, uh, and you react and you say, oh shit, this is over, and you just panic and you succumb to that moment, uh, then that's not healthy. But if you realize, oh, I just tweaked my back. I don't know what this means. Let me just continue to move and see how it plays out without panicking, without succumbing to the emotion that's coming up. Right. Now you're responding, and what you realize is that you will uh, heal quicker. You'll become whole yeah. uh, quicker. And I think this is where, uh, just like I, I do, I am confident yeah. in saying, from a general perspective, that is generally the truth. Like totally. the the person who's able to just kind of respond instead of react, the healing process is is way way faster. Mm-hmm. And and for yeah. so many levels, because if you look at like the paint BPS model, biopsychosocial and how they mm-hmm. are integrated. They all influence one another. Neither is really one more important than the other. It's not to take away from an experience. You know what I mean? Like somebody I was watching made a joke yesterday, like a client's in the gym in a movement hurts their shoulder or whatever. And uh, 
And uh, he, he, he goes, you know, oh, when you first learn the BPS model, which is the biopsychosocial model to pain for those who aren't listening. But mm-hmm. he goes, oh, well, how's the relationship with your wife? And it, it, like in the video, light bulbs go off and he and he goes home and he like divorces his wife and he comes back to the gym and he does the shoulder press again and it still hurts. So it's like it was just a, a play on like, like, obviously, they all influence each other. And when you're in the field of movement, you treat you have you still have to look at movement through movement. You don't want to just like, oh, well you know, what happened today that made you sad? And maybe that's why your shoulder hurts, mm-hmm. whatever. You still have to respect that it's, it's there, but yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I th- there's, so a, there's a difference between the, <laughs> the uh, structural damage uh, and the way that you perceive maybe that pain associated to that structural damage yeah. versus your relationship to that damage, which is now identity based because you can say I'm a power lifter who uh, tweaked my back, or I can say I'm a person who has a tweaked back who's trying to power lift. Very different. Very different, yeah. And I know anytime you have an ailment and you try to fix it, the more you try to fix it, the worse it gets. Yeah. It's And I think this is kind of like, um, if anybody has done this before or heard about this, uh, somatic experiencing or somatic tracking yeah. is a really powerful way of uh, managing pain. And basically what you're doing is changing your relationship to it. And a, a, a super simplified version of this is kind of like you notice the pain. Oh, my back is tweaked. And then you go to all that which is not tweaked. And uh, that contrast makes you realize that there's more of your body that doesn't have pain than does have pain. Thus, the perceived pain goes down. And once that happens, your behavior changes. And when your behavior changes, now your movement changes and yada, 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 yada. So it's like a whole thing. Uh, Yeah, so it's super interesting things but i think it's so important to understand how we function so that we can logically make better decisions and have uh better outcomes and furthermore a better experience um in the pursuit of these outcomes if that's what we're doing yeah yeah i think this is where we can kind of bridge process versus outcome because basically the way i explained it to uh, to this client right was okay look here's the situation you got hurt Mm -hmm. and of course in in their head, it's like, oh, is it the training leading up to this point? Oh, you know, I got a, I, I got a chiropractic adjustment, and I noticed after the adjustment, it got a lot worse. And so they're trying to like pinpoint this moment in time where it's like, what was the thing that set it yeah. off? Because maybe if I can figure out what the thing was that set it off, just like this, this mechanistic sort of like outlook or mechanical outlook is like, okay, I know the input, therefore this is the reason that I got the output, and now I have a very simple solution. Because all I have to do is modify or manage the input and get a different output, right? Yeah, wouldn't Whereas, that be nice, right? If it, it was would, that simple, it would be that. It, it would be so nice if it was that simple. But then I kind of I say, look, it doesn't matter. Like it, it, like it really doesn't matter whether it was the adjustment or whether because the fact of the matter is you have a set of circumstances right now that now become a process that you have to manage. It doesn't really matter what it is, and so I, it's like, what do you want to do? Right. Because of course, what they're being advised is don't do X, don't do Y. It's not good for you. It's blah, 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 blah. If you do it, you're going to hurt yourself further, whatever. And I'm like, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to get back to X, Y thing. I'm like, okay, good. Because this thing that they gave you is not going to get you back to X, Y thing. Getting Mm -hmm. back to X, Y thing is what's going to get you back to X, Y thing. Let's figure out how we manage this process of getting you back as close to that thing as possible, because that's really going to be the only way that you're going to get back. And now we have to look at this thing. It's like, there is no, I don't have a magic exercise. I don't have a magic movement or anything. This has now become a process that you and I are both going to have to be involved in 
yeah, we're trying to get a certain outcome, but I don't want you to look at it as like, what do I do to fix my back? It's like, how do you manage the process of doing what you want to do until you get to the point where you realize, oh, my back is no longer a thing that is inhibiting me from doing the thing that I want to do, right? Because for instance, I play rugby. Four months ago, I got my leg broken during the game. Oh no! Of, of course, I was like, shit, <laughs> you know, because totally. like, we, we become a state championship team. I don't get to play in that game or whatever. But it, and I detached from all that. And unfortunately, I was able to just be there and support and just enjoy the process. But for me, went to the ortho. Oh, don't do X and don't do Y. Went to another ortho. Don't do X and don't do Y. And finally, the third ortho, I, looked, I said, look, here's how this is going to go down. Mm-hmm. I'm going to continue training because now I have X amount of months that I can't play rugby. So I'm going to figure it. And it was a, it was a fibula. So fortunately it wasn't like a, a tibia break or anything like that. So still a lot, you know, I was in a boot for only like a week or two. Mm-hmm. And then from there just had to be intelligent, but the way, instead of me going up, oh, I'm screwed for four months. I can't do anything on my leg. I can't do this. I can't do that. I basically went straight into, I was deadlifting the next day, maybe not barbell conventional sure. deadlifting, whatever, but like seated, de- like I, it just became a process now that I have to go through versus how do I fix my, it was like, no, I just have to which, change. Which, which also, by the way, keeps you empowered. Yes. Yeah. It, it gives you control over the situation, right? Exactly. So, which I think is very, which I think is the first thing people feel like they lose. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the freak out is like, oh, I, I no longer have control. I'm now affected by this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no, I have no like, uh, like cause point or control over this situation now. Right. Exactly. So, um, which is huge. Psychologically speaking, that is huge. Yeah. And. It, it it keeps you in process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is now where we can get into this process versus outcome, because obviously yeah. the outcome of, we want a specific outcome, but I'll let you elaborate. What is the difference and, and how are they connected and how are they not connected or are they, you know, maybe we can go into I'm, your thinking on uh, it. Yeah. I think they're totally interconnected. Um, this is this is how I think about it. I, I and I, I'm just going to use this little framework to to highlight it. I say process over progress, progress over progression, progression over outcome. Mm. So I'm going to try to break this down. The outcome is the thing that you want to achieve. The progression is the roadmap that you follow to get to the outcome. The progress is how you are moving along that map, that road, that path. And the process is the taking of the steps. So when you can focus on the process over the progress that you're making, usually the progress is uh, a better one. We can define what better is, okay? When you, if you are focusing on the progress, when you focus on the progress, if you prioritize that over the progression, the way that you're uh, trying to go there, the, the route that you're following, the program that you have uh, signed up for now you're uh, using as your practice, so to speak, uh, the outcome is better. You arrive at the outcome sooner. And if you're focusing on the progression, which is the method, the practice, the roadmap, the daily thing, over the outcome, uh, the more at peace you are, because uh, there's this inner sense that you're already there. That being said, the outcome has to also come before the process. In other words, you have to see it as bookends to this framework. So you have to see outcome. I'm thinking, what do I want to achieve? I want to be Olympic champion. Cool. 
All right. What's the process? How am I making progress? What's the progression? And then there's the outcome again. So outcome, process, progress, progression, outcome again. This becomes a circular thing, which now if we bring it back to this idea of walking up or climbing up that spiral staircase, it's the same thing. And uh, becoming process-oriented, I think, starts with creating identity-based habits. One is maybe, now that I want to be Olympic champion, I know that I need to show up for training. I need to show up for practice. I need to do some recovery stuff. And I need to uh, organize my whole schedule around these things as uh, that's what's going to take for me to become the Olympic champion now. Right, that's process. The progress is uh, in time, noticing what changes you've made. Thus, you need some KPIs. You need some indicators. Like, yeah. did I add more weight to the bar? Are my times getting better? How do I? Am I feeling better? How am I looking? What, whatever it may be. Right? Yeah. Then the progression is uh, the method. And although there are universal prescriptions, universal methods, like things that you and I can say that if you do these things, if you take these three steps, these five steps, you're going to move closer to the thing. Uh, iterating on the progression, on the roadmap, on the method is important. And that's simply tweaking. You know what? Instead of back squatting today, we're actually going to front squat. It keeps us on track. It keeps us following the thing. It's just an adaptation. Yeah. Maybe today we need to use the spare tire. You know, we just had a whatever, until we can get it replaced, right? It's that, that thing. And what happens that if you just do that and you remember the outcome, this is when I always say, uh, remember why you started and you'll know how to finish. Yeah. The outcome now becomes this um, thing that is, instead of a destination, a sentiment, a feeling. And that's how you become process-oriented. You just remember the feeling every day. You're like, oh, the outcome is this. How does that feel? Oh, shit, it feels great. It feels empowering. It feels crazy. It feels exciting, whatever it may be. Now, allow that outcome to inform your process. So uh, you break your leg. Now you can't deadlift, but you're doing the seated good mornings or whatever it is right. to say, well, I'm still feeling the same thing. That I needed to feel, although my uh, progression is slightly different, right, the process right. is the same. Yep. And because I'm in identity, I'm, I, I identify with that process. Now, um, I've already achieved the outcome. I'm already that. I'm already the New York Times bestseller. I'm already on the cover of the magazine. I've already made the money. I've already all that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's how I approached it because I find people will just approach it two ways. What can I do? What can I not do? And I really just focus on what can I do? And then through that, I had a testing. Well, let's see what I can do. How do I do oh. it? Well, you do things and see what you can do. See what hurts, what doesn't mm -hmm. hurt, what, you know, and through that, I was able to start narrowing down what I could do, what I couldn't do, but really just focusing more on, okay, what are the things that I can do? And I realized, okay, cool. Like you said, I could do see a good mornings. I could do single leg RDL. I could do different, I could do RDLs. Mm -hmm. Um, because the, the, the way the load, you know, happens essentially first versus concentrically having to push them to the floor were different. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I found that I could deadlift with a stiff leg. I couldn't deadlift dorsiflexing my ankle because the translation of the tibia going from, you know, positive to negative affected the leg. So through a process, I was able to just start like, okay, can't do this. Can't do this. Can't do this. But within the realm of this general thing, let's just call it hinging. Mm -hmm. I was able to come up with a bunch of different ways that I could still do it. So it was a very empowering process. And in the last four months, I think, like, I think people expect me coming back from a leg break to be out of shape. Like I was Mm -hmm. still able to ride a, I, I couldn't do a rower, but I could ride an air bike. I could, you know, there were different things that I could do. And so at the end of that four month process, I get back onto the pitch and people are like, what the hell you're bigger, you're stronger. And you're in better shape than you were four months ago, but you did yeah. it on a broke coming off a broken leg. How did you do that? And it's like, well, I just went through a process of what can I do versus what can, you know, I say versus what can I not do, but just by finding out, not because I was focusing on what I can't do, because if I was like, oh, well, if I just focus on what I can't do, well, I can't do, I can't deadlift. So, well, I can't train my lower body, but I, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So it's just like, I just find that people kind of go. Totally. But I think this is ways. why people need you or people who have expertise. I think we're all in development, so it's hard to be an expert, but we have expertise, which is experience that allows you to arrive at a creative solution quicker and say, hey, I know you're freaking out right now, but uh, there are still ways of moving. And here are three techniques that you can follow that will allow you to do that pain-free. Furthermore, you can um, uh, load them, add speed, whatever it may be. Yeah. That's going to stress you in the right way to keep you as close as possible to on path. Yeah. yeah. And even for me, it was like going, finally finding an orthopedic who was like, yeah, you can continue to train. He was obviously like, don't be stupid. He's like, mm-hmm. closed chain stuff is going to be probably pretty good for you. Totally. It's not, it's not going to affect the bone in any sort of negative way. It's like the last thing that you probably will get back to is, you know, plyometric activity and running, jogging, whatever, like makes sense. And for me, I was able to not, you know, of course, they're like, okay, we expect within an eight to 12 week window of you basically being fine and having the expectation. But I also just remember having this, this feeling of like the day I kind of realized my leg didn't hurt anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was like, I wasn't really focused on my leg. But I do remember just doing something one day and was like, oh, that didn't feel funny or feel weird or feel odd. And then I kind of just was able to just kind of get back to doing the thing. But but it wasn't it wasn't an, obviously that was the the necessary outcome. Like and that was the mm-hmm. outcome I wanted. But I, I was a little bit more focused on the process of like, OK, what can I do until this point happens, which we don't we have some sort of estimation on when it can happen. It could be shorter. It could be longer. Like, I'm not waiting for that moment. It's just going to come at some point, And I just have to continue through the steps of like what I'm going to do anyway. And that's continue to try to get better at whatever I can get better at in the meantime. Totally. I mean? And I think that's so. also con- contingent on your ability to trust yourself or trust somebody oh, that's yeah, guiding absolutely. you. So I think this is where uh, this like saying of trust the process comes into play. And uh, I forget who who said this. So if you if you recognize this framework, please tell me who it was. Because uh, I heard it and it just stuck with me, which is that trust is based on uh, competence, being able to do something and doing it well. It's uh, based on integrity, which is an alignment of values, sentiments, uh, right. principles. Uh, it's based on um, consistency, meaning that it's something that it's guaranteed to show up. It's predictable. And then eventually, and and then finally, compassion. So uh, consistency, uh, competence, integrity, and compassion. When those four elements are involved 
it's it's easy to trust a person. It's easy to trust a, a method, and thus trust a process. Uh, so yeah, I think now we're getting into like performance uh, based on the emotional or the human experience, which yeah. is really, I think, really it's fundamental to yeah high level performance or achieving anything, whether it's in the strength and conditioning room or anywhere else. Yeah. However you define performance in whatever field that you're in, period. Yeah. Totally. And the technical thing, that's the beauty is that the technical stuff is the easy stuff. That's the stuff that you can learn, you can read about, uh, somebody can tell you. The hard part is the adaptive stuff, the stuff that is requires you to be something you are not today and thus uh, engage with the inner world, which is very convoluted and scary and yeah. confusing. And... Um, but but uh, also essential. Yeah, yeah. Did we did we go too far out? <laughs> no, for my for the for my sort of crowd, not at all, not okay. at all. We, we okay. can get into like, we can get we into lost some, them. We lost. No, them. we can get into some pretty uh, some pretty deep topics. I think people That's will cool. appreciate it a lot. Like uh, my last my last guest was uh, Quinn Hennick. Are you familiar with uh, Doctor no. Quinn Hennick? So no, he was. I he used to, uh, he's a physical therapist and he, um, also has a big online following was with juggernaut training systems for some time and then branched away from there. But we went into like dynamical systems theory cool. and kind of like, you know, uh, which is also a very similar, like I could very much apply that to what we have talked about today, just in terms of, you know, if you have, we're task-based, we have a task. And the things that are going to influence the outcome or how we execute that task are going to be based on like our biology, um, the environment, and then uh, what is it? it? It's task, environment. Oh yeah, so the task, the environment, and then the the structure, the biology. In this case, an individual are going to determine how we execute any sort of outcome, right? That's so, cool. And, and, and those are the That's three cool. things that influence, you know, execution of of task, right? Mm -hmm. And those. Constraints. So those are the what are defined as constraints within the system that will influence how we execute certain tasks or, or, or how we go through the process and what that process may look like to execute a certain task. So it's like, um, you know, again, if, if we look at um, when we look at, let's just say, again, if, if you go back to like Olympic lifting and again, it's, it's so funny because everything you spoke about is like almost an exact parallel. You have this process where you know what what's going to influence how a clean and jerk is performed right totally i i i, can, I have an i have a, a little framework for that too yeah uh, yeah and so that's that's kind of what we talked and it was very in the weeds discussion but people like that i think i think people i think people at the end of the day are are looking for well, maybe. I think there's some people that are looking for a little bit of a deeper understanding behind all of this because you do have the people that are, again, still very um, outcome-oriented and they want a specific outcome and they think it's it's as simple as like input. What's the input mm -hmm. that I need, right? Mm -hmm. Without becoming self-aware in the process. And I know just following your stuff for years, what really drew me to wanting to have this conversation at this time was I, was I saw a lot of your content speaking about emotional fitness mm, and, and, and really... Cool. And leaning into that. And I thought it just fit really well. Um, you know, and so maybe we can kind of come to that point of, of obviously we, we went through a lot here and that yeah. all is probably part of it, but 
emotional fitness and becoming self-aware and why self-awareness is so important to the process, especially when you want people to achieve things or, or just as an individual, when you want to achieve certain things, because like, for instance, you know, a lot of people, even though I write training, it's, it's funny because like as a coach, right. And this, and maybe this is where we can kind of polish this whole thing off is, is as a coach, I find this paradox sometimes of like, where I very much sell formalities, right? Here's, here's programs. Here's a system of rules that I want you to follow a process or principles that I want you to apply. But I try to deliver in a way where it's not dogma. Like don't like dogma has purpose. And I think dogma is formality. It has a purpose to sort of have some hierarchy or structure, but then you have to learn how to break it. And I think that's like, for me, for instance, people ask me, Oh, like what kind of program do you follow? What kind of program do you run? And I'm like, I don't like mm -hmm. my, my training has been auto-regulated for five years now. I show up to the gym. I have some sort of loose structure or idea of, 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 uh, what I want to accomplish, or at least I pick a couple tasks. Okay. What do I want to do with this? Right. And then based on that, I sort of auto-regulate my training every session, every set, every rep, the intensity, everything is just, I, it's more or less, I go by feel, but Same. you will get a lot of people who go, well, you can't make progress that way. And it's like, well, I've actually made the best progress that way. It's like, yeah, like regulating yeah, de de define, define progress. Exactly. You know, I, I'm the biggest, I'm the strong, I, blah, whatever. You know, I have my own KPIs that I use, but it's just really funny because I, I just think that's the difference between, um, you know, you'll hear maybe lifetime intermediates thrown around, like, especially in the strength conditioning world, when it comes to like strength sports, people that are lifetime intermediates, it means they, I think they get confined to the rigidity of formalities that they can never transcend to the creative aspect. And then you get you get the coaches that are too lost in the formalities that when you see people break away and get into the more creative aspect, they become kind of counterculture in a way. And then they sort of try to chastise that. And it's like, well, well, you know, it can become, it can become gimmicky at some point. Yeah. Right. We, I, I could see that. where people make it gimmicky. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And so, because it's like, well, you can't just not have rules. And it's like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, for instance, it's, um, again, it just comes down to tech. Like it, and again, I, I use these representations because I think they're just easy for people to visualize. Right. And it's like squatting. Totally. It's like a squat can be done and achieved in a variety of different ways. Of course, like if you think, if you just look at the silhouette of a squat, we can all mm -hmm. pretty much come up with the same picture. Yep. Right. But like how somebody achieves that silhouette can be different. Right. And, mm -hmm. and everyone's looking at the silhouette they're looking at the outcome. They're not really looking at the process of why might that person be doing it that way or whatever. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, well, you know, for, like for, you know, an example that I always run with is, um, you know, people teaching and I'm not even saying, but teaching to push your knees out in a squat and, and these kinds of things. And it's like, well, wait a second, because if we actually look at the highest level of squatters and you look at any of them squat or catch a jerk or clean, there's always some medial knee travel. So why is it mm -hmm. we're, we're teaching this rule, this hard and fast rule of like your knees can never travel medially. They always have to be pushed out. And I think it limits people because it doesn't allow for some creative expression in terms of like what works best for me, because we don't have any evidence that suggests that medial knee travel in a squat is actually going to damage your knees mm -hmm. or that it's necessarily bad at all if we actually look at the data. But there is this like rigid formality of rules that have been sort of created by this, this, this industry 
where it's funny because I find that it keeps people intermediate and it doesn't allow for self-awareness and this ability for people to sort of transcend to the next level. And that's actually really become good at that thing. And, and, you know, and, and then it's like, it's funny because then people will say, well, you can't look at the elites more or less and teach like sprinting is another way, right? Like you'll see sprint coaches. There's so many different techniques in terms of sprinting. There's, there's some, there are some, um, more uh, universally accepted principles within sprinting. But then when you actually like watch eight or 600 meter sprinters line up and sprint from A to B, you're going to find that they all sprint A to B in a certain amount of time. But the process of how they get from the start line to the finish line is slightly different and individual. And it's like, so how do we really define like what good technique is or what bad technique is? Because, you know, you have Michael Johnson on air saying, oh, you know, you know, uh, Usain Bolt could be way more, way faster if, if, if he cleaned up this technique or whatever, yet he's the fastest man to ever. So it's just like a really, it's like, a, there's just a lot of irony that exists. And I think what I'm trying to get people to understand or what I've found that I'm trying to get through to people that I'm just, and this is the reason I'm so glad we've had this conversation is, is sort of learning how to transcend and go from mm-hmm. understanding the rules and being able to operate within the rules. But have some creative outlet in terms of like, there is, it's okay to have some individuality and how do you trust when to sort of not, because social media is so hard because you just see so many different opinions. Um, And I think it's extremely paralyzing. It's like, well, this person has this formal structure and this person has this formal structure. And it's like this person saying, I can't operate within this formal structure if I'm operating in this one. And it, it just becomes very dogmatic. And I've, you know, I've always liked your view on movement and mm. because I think it does allow for a lot of creative expression. And it's like, you know, there, there's, you know, <laughs> it's funny because you can have two people who learn how to cook. They both go through the same formal process, but one becomes like a very good cook and one becomes a very bad cook. Relatively, like maybe you're just not enjoyed as much. And they both went through the same formalities, but then the creative experience is different. One is just a little bit better. The creative experience, they're still following the rules, mm-hmm. right? But they're not totally, it's, it's just so interesting conversation because it's like, yeah. what are the rules? Like what really are the rules? Right. And, and using the squat example, Quinn was like, well, what is the purpose of a squat? Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, to, to sit down and stand up with as much weight as possible. Okay. That's it. Those are the mm-hmm. rules. Now you can add other rules, but then you have to ask, why are we adding those rules? Right? Like, well, you have to squat down with your knees out. And it's like, well, that's just why. Right. And these mm-hmm. are the, and you're just adding rules to it. And it's not saying that it's necessarily good or bad, but it can be limiting as well. Right. Yeah. Especially if it's just depends on what the, what is the, what's the, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve? Because oh, if it is limiting your ability to achieve the outcome that you want, then it's no longer serving you. Exactly. So we have to be willing to kind of break away from the mold, I think, and, and, you know, um, just sort of challenge those things. Yeah. You know, I think that's what artists have always done. And in a, in a cheesy sort of way, I think that's where like extreme weightlifting, um, like, I'm not like a huge fan of weightlifting. I, I, I can appreciate it. And like, but I don't know weightlifters by name, but it's like, but then you see the people go, Oh no, 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 you don't understand weightlifting. It's an art, but it's like, Oh, I can understand why they say that. And it's because at the highest level, they kind of break the rules, but still follow the rules at the same time. 
right um and mm-hmm. i think that's with any good artist it's like you know they they break the rules but they still follow the rules and i think um the best it's like science which would be the the formality right is is the basis of art because that process kind of comes first is is we kind of figure out this subset of rules like oh music it has notes it has yeah, this music it has and that. that yeah it's like music and then but then you learn how to break those kind of rules and then you use them to you know to create whatever and i think it's all kind of comes down to that at the end of the day but yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think you're totally right um yeah, something I used to say, it's it's kind of like when people were asking me about my book, I said, I, I just try to put together like um, a cookbook that has some recipes that when you go through the recipes, one day you can go home and then you can put together ingredients that are in your pantry and your fridge at home in a way that produces a meal that's nutritious and tastes good. So like yeah. that should be the goal. So like the formalities should just be uh structures that help you understand how to be creative how to create something and if the outcome is something that tastes good something that feeds you and nourishes you then now you know how to do it you know you know like okay i i know that i need some protein i need some carbohydrate i need some fat this is what i want to taste like this is what i want it to look like this is how i want it to feel like when i'm eating it in terms of texture like you could go really far in that yeah. in that realm and and that's fun on the other side, like something that you said, and I, I guess it's it's worth mentioning right now, I always used to say that the way that we set standards or create standards are based on our anatomy or biomechanics, on uh, the rules or standards of a sport or a game, and then uh, aesthetics. And a lot of times, um, that which is mechanically sound, of course, uh, looks different for different people, but it has to do with effectiveness, efficiency. And everybody, although we're um, anatomically uh, speaking, very similar, um, uh, we have a very unique way of applying force, right? Of, of, right. of moving from point A to point B. Yeah. But when we find the effectiveness and efficiency of that, then what we're doing is we're actually informing the rules and standards and we're informing the aesthetics. So, for example, in gymnastics, uh, one of the rules on uh, the rings is that your arms can't touch the straps or cables. So uh, if you're in a support position, basically just holding yourself up, the best way of keeping your hands as close as possible to your body, which is the most effective and efficient way of holding yourself up rather than right. cross, right. is to simply turn your hands out or turn your palms forward, which would be externally rotating your shoulders. Right. And that becoming the anatomical position and something that you can say, okay, that's a, uh, a stacked shoulder, a locked elbow, or however right. you want to put it, right? right? But when you do that, just simply turning your thumbs out, it pushes the straps away. And now you can be as close as possible to their body easier and then straps away from the body. You're meeting the standard or the, the rule. Yeah. That's cool. Aesthetically speaking, like what looks better? Does it look better to be here or does it look better to be there? Right. So all of a sudden you're like, well, it looks better to be in the anatomical position or the biomechanically advantageous position that also matches the the, the, the rules yeah. and standards of the sport. Furthermore, if now you have something that is aesthetically appealing that you're like, wow, when I see it, whether it looks like how I look or not, but I feel like it's something unique and it's mechanically sound, but it doesn't match the standards or rules or methods that exist out there, you're probably creating a new one. That's cool. Why not live in a place where you can constantly be pushing the edges of yeah. a method of a way? That's fun. Uh, this is the uh, birth of new sports, new ways. Yeah. And well, it's like, like the street calisthenics is basically like 
they just took gymnastics and different they kind climbing of, yeah, exactly all yeah. that stuff you know, yeah contemporary dance or well yeah contemporary dance like whatever yeah mm-hmm. and then you you wonder well how does emotional fitness or apply break dancing that know. break dancing is a huge yeah. one uh well, the way that I define emotional fitness is as the ability to move into a state of being that translates into purposeful action. In other words, it's your ability to realize that at any given point in time, you can change your state of being, the way that you see the world, the way that you feel. And when you direct that in a way that is purposeful, deliberate, now you perform at the highest level. Mm. And that's the whole point. And then you wonder, well, what, what are the practices? Well, the practices can be as simple as some meditation, some breath work, uh, doing something that is physical. So just moving your body, training, right. practicing, playing a game, and then having something that is purely artistic or creative. And I mean, uh, just so you get an idea, uh, a few weeks ago, I have these like tree stumps that um, were left over from uh, a tree that they cut down. And I took some sandpaper and I just spent a few hours sanding uh, these these logs and people would walk by and be like, what are you doing? But for me, that was just like, I just wanted to experience the feeling of that. But in the process of like creating this little beautiful tree stump that was just touched by me <laughs> in, this, in this moment, uh, it gives me access to a whole uh, new level of relationship to my internal experience, to my emotions. And that translates into everything I do. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it made me fitter. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's, uh, it's such a, uh, I'm like, uh, because it's, <laughs> there's not it's, there's not an end to this conversation basically. there's not and that's that's the whole that's that's the whole point right is that it, it, it's just there isn't and mm -hmm. it's like this the conversation can and i'm sure will continue in the future because it's you know it's just it's interesting because you know i i guess in in fitness and as a coach most people are obviously extensively driven by something right? Mm -hmm. An outcome they want to achieve. And so it's, I like how you laid out the process to outcome because it gives me framework in which now I can communicate to people the importance of the process to getting to the outcome because everyone wants to rush the process to just get straight to the mm -hmm. outcome. That is the, you know, that 12 minute abs is like, the destruction of of what it really takes to succeed not just in fitness but really in anything because like most nothing good is achieved that quickly and, and, and if it does happen but they're outliers and it's usually by chance and it's usually not sustained because like you said habits weren't created over a long enough period of time to where the behaviors into in the you know the person is not a changed person because it, you know it it's just, yeah. it's like people who win the lottery. What happens to people who win the lottery, right? It's yeah, like most of them go broke. They but go I th broke I think, because okay, you're, you're exactly. bringing something really powerful up. And if we had to summarize everything into like one like thing, it would be what's your agreement with yourself and with others? If, if mm. you have an agreement that you say, okay, this is, this is what we agree on. Let's say we're, we're, we're going to compete in some event and we're going to be training and you come in as a coach, I come in as the athlete, you say, this is the progression, the roadmap, the method, 
you're just going to continue to do this every single day. That's going to be your process. If we agree that we're going to adhere to this progression, to this method, to this way, uh, setting a, a, a time boundary uh, is powerful and say, can you agree to do this for three months? Yeah. Yes. Okay. If we both agree on that, all we have to do on a daily basis is show up and remember, show up and remember. It's You show up, maybe you feel great. You just do the thing. If you don't feel great and you don't want to do it, you remember why you started. Now you continue to do the thing. Yeah. It comes down to that. You do that. That, that was uh, be successful. That is so funny. You said that because I literally just watched Michael Phelps give a speech this morning. And that was like literally his defining characteristic between being good and being the very best. And he goes in my whole, he, I think he literally said in 20 years of swimming, he said, I probably had a hundred days where I didn't want to get out of bed and swim. Mm -hmm. He goes, but I got out of bed and I went and I swam anyway. And it was like, and he said, those a hundred days were the defining days of his career because he truly just feels like at the end of the day, the people that really achieve at the highest level, they do the things they don't want to do when they don't want to do them. And it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily even matter the quality of how those things are done. It just matters that you, the habit that you created those a hundred times was to, this is what I'm feeling. This is the emotion that I'm experiencing right now. And I understand it and it's there, but fuck it. I'm going to go do it anyway. Exactly. And you know, that it's like, I'm sure you've had very similar experiences. It's like, even for me and you know, I've been training, I guess, technically within the weight room structure for, you know, 15 years. So, but I'm, and I'm sure anyone can relate to the subject. We've all had the day where we just feel like shit, mm -hmm. like, man, fuck the gym. I don't want to be in there today, but you show up anyway and you PR or you mm -hmm. have like the best <laughs> and, and it doesn't even feel good working up to it. Right. You just feel like shit, whatever, but you just PR it's because like, there's something that happens within you where you've made a decision. It's like, no matter what the outcome is today, I'm just going to go through the process of doing the thing that I know I need to show up and do and just mm -hmm. see what happens. And then usually, because now you've, you've, you, you don't have, you don't have an expectation now yeah. because you, you're like, ah, I feel like crap anyway. So I'm not going to put any expectations on this workout. And so then what ends up happening is you go in and you have the best workout you've ever had on the, on the one day you just didn't want to do it. Right. And yes. I, and I think that's like, those are the defining days that really push people. And like you said, just change everything. Like it seems really corny and it seems cheesy mm -hmm. and it seems like, but it's like those truly, there's a reason why that is. And it's because it, it does, it, it changes your life. Like it, it will change your life if you can, if you can do those things. Yes. And yeah. Oh my God. Totally. And, and you just brought something up that is, 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 kind of key here, which is, you know, I was saying this agreement and remembering, and actually there's a, there's a cool interview with, um, uh, Michael Phelps's coach where he said, you know, one of the things that set us apart was that, uh, we focused on varying the, the, the practice enough that he could train every day so he could accumulate volume. And that added two extra hours of time in the pool every week, which is 104, uh, mm -hmm. hours per year, which is within a quad, which is the Olympic cycle, yeah. that is uh, now uh, 416 hours. And you just look at those repetitions, that is that much more volume than those um, other athletes that uh, Phelps is competing against. Anyways, that was like an interesting thing on volume. Yeah. And then there's another story about Phelps, which is, I, I forget what Olympics it was, but I think he was doing the butterfly 
I think is like his best thing. Uh, and his goggles uh, dropped off and he was just like, well, I, I just have to count strokes. And I know if I count strokes, I'll, I'll get the thing, which is trusting the process. And yeah. there's something about that, that those, those moments of high, the highest level of performance are the moments that you now don't have to remember. You actually allow yourself to forget. Yeah. You forget. Uh, Fuck it, my my goggles came off, or uh, screw it. I, I forget about everything that I've done up to this point. I'm just going to do, and that's something that I mean, at a small scale, I, I felt when I finished writing my book. This was now in 2013 or whatever. I remember that I was holding on to this information that was like a lifetime of information. I was like remembering, remembering, remembering. The moment I I wrote the last word and I finished the manuscript, I could afford to forget because now it was recorded. And the moment I have, I allowed myself to forget, I felt this like huge sense of relief. But what I realized was that I could remember on command. That any ch uh, chance I had to like think about, it, I could like pull out that information. I didn't have to try anymore. And that's the epitome, I think, of performance too. Is that, and part of like trusting the process is that you no longer have to try; you just do. Yeah, and then Yoda. be open to change when it comes. <laughs> and that's, that's, it's cool shit. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Yoda, man. There is yeah. no try. There's only do, right? But that's right. That's yeah. Right. That, the volume thing is, and maybe this is something I'll, I'm going to write down here just to keep a note, um, you know, volume and just repetition in general, you know, which maybe not the exact same definition, but they're interchangeable to some degree. Right. Um, because <clears throat> there's, un there is a trend a little bit of, you know, th there's like minimum effective dose mm -hmm. of something mm -hmm. that's probably going to make you accomplish things, you know, again, at the, at the minimum level. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's, um, there's like literally doing as much as you possibly can. Right. Which I, I fall into the, the camp of like, you should do something as much as you possibly can for as long as you can possibly do it. I mean, it. input and, and output is it's, it's, it's yeah. like calories in calories out. It, it, it's yeah. So I, right? I'm, and, I'm with and you so it's that. like, you know, you know, it's, it's funny when you get to the realm of repetition and hours trained and like overtraining, is that really totally. a thing? Well, oh, quality you know, is quality, quality is important. Is the important. effectiveness of what you're doing is important. And yeah. uh, knowing that is important, but sometimes you don't know because maybe there's lack of experience or yeah. whatever it may be. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's a very interesting topic for sure. Yeah. Because I, I just think there is a big trend of like people sort of pandering to this idea of like, you can do more with less. And in some aspects, for sure, right? Yeah, okay. In some regards, but like, I mean, really less in terms of complexity, I can understand. Yeah. But uh, anybody who's out there doing it at the highest level is doing a lot. Like, there's a yeah. lot of input. You can't escape the volume. Yeah, it was it was really interesting because I have a buddy of mine locally here in Tampa who worked for the uh, the Blue Jays organization for a little while, and um, it was also a discussion on this because. What happened was, you know, if you think of the baseball and an average batting average in baseball, like 250 is actually good, mm -hmm. right? Like that's a good batting average, but that means you only hit one in four balls or you're only on mm -hmm. base one in four times. There's 25%. Most people are like 25%. That's terrible. Right. <laughs> right. But the, the interesting thing is like, you know, how many pitches do you get per at bat? So let's say you would bat three to four times a game, right? If you're lucky. 
Mm-hmm. How many pitches do you get per bat? You know, maybe probably somewhere between, I don't know what the average is. I'm sure there's an average somewhere, but let's just say it's maybe somewhere between. I mean, I don't know anything about and, baseball. And, so. and eight, right. But the point is, is like, if you actually just take how many times you play and how many pitches you get against the most elite pitchers on the planet, which their little job is to you not to hit the ball, by the way, you think of how much repetition it is. It seems like a lot, right? But talking to him, it was like, it's really interesting because you would think at that level, um, you know, he said the most, the whole reason I'm bringing it up, he's like the most mind blowing thing for me. Cause he wasn't like a baseball guy either. He's a Cairo. So, but he just, that he got into baseball. He's like for hours, every single day, even on game days, they would have batting practice and they would hit hundreds upon hundreds mm-hmm. upon hundreds of pitches for hours, even on the day of a game. And it's like, a lot of people don't realize like, and he's just like, look, if you, are you that person, you know what I mean? Are you that person that's getting hundreds, if not thousands of more repetitions than the next guy? Because if you are, your chances of success at that level are going to be much higher than the person that's like, Oh, you only need to you know, do it a couple of times a week and blah, 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 you know, whatever. But um, yeah, it's just an interesting thing because yeah, volume and you hear people like guys like Louis Simmons that are like, he's coined volume is king and it's like everyone's like what do you mean volume's king you can't just Mm -hmm. train all the time or whatever he's like but that's the beauty of the conjugate the conjugate method was all about how do you how do you increase volume without damaging the body also very variability at the same time yeah and i think that's and i think variability is the thing that allows you to increase volume the volume that's exactly the point you yeah that's exactly yeah yeah. like how do you do a similar thing but not the same thing to accumulate the volume you need. And it's a, another good example was a friend. I talked to a, um, I interviewed a guy who did uh, ultras mm. and, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, and I'm thinking to myself, like this guy must run hundreds of miles a week. Right. And to my surprise, no, he actually probably runs this. He runs by the same amount of mileage that like a marathon runner would run, but he gets a lot of volume on the bike or he gets a lot of volume in a pool, something that's much lower impact. So there's not as much physiological stress, but the cardiovascular adaptations can continue to improve and get better and adjust to that amount. So it's just like, yeah, the, playing the with, I think playing with the mechanical, from, right. Yeah. Mechanical transferability, physiological transferability. And that is, uh, I think where you become like principle based, um, in your yeah, approach 100%. to programming, uh, yeah. I, I love I love I love all this stuff. It's it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I could geek out on it all all day. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I just again, I just want to say thank you because you know, again, if in case people don't pick up the beginning, like I've I've technically followed your content for a long time, at least That's probably amazing. since two thousand eight. I was eighteen amazing. years old, just graduated high school, got into CrossFit after being a baseball player. And that's where I got first introduced to your content. So it's, wow. it's been a long time coming and I'm just like, for, it's, it's funny being like, I was in a place of consumer being a part of the sport post high school. Now I do it professionally and here we are sitting having this conversation. So you're someone that I've always respected and admired. Um, and fortunately, just in that process so of cool. life, we've had mutual connections somewhere along the way. And uh, I'm just beyond grateful to uh, sit down and have this conversation with you. I know for me, for sure, I had, I have lots to go think about after this. And I also have a lot of light bulbs go off and connections, bridges and connections made of of different things. And so 
you know, again, I just, I just want to say thank you. Um, Carl, where can people find you? Um, if they want more of your content and more of what you have to offer uh, to the world, where, where can they find you? Yeah, I think just Google Carl Powley will find me on every social media channel or uh, on my website and other people's podcasts. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of floating right now a little bit uh, just because I'm so focused on this um, representation and business development side of things with these athletes, uh, specifically breakers going to the Olympics, that I've been less public. Uh, yeah, but everything that I'm talking about or that I shared here today is is applicable to to that. Uh, so yeah, you can you can Google me, uh, message me. Uh, I mean, I still I still take on clients and 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 so on. So I do uh, a mixture of business development, personal development personal branding work with with uh, individuals so if, if you're interested in that you can you can find me i'm i'm not always available uh but uh i i love doing it and it's something that i find yeah great joy in and pursuing so uh you, you can always yeah connect with me in that way if you ever want to work with me awesome yeah and i recommend yeah. anyone who who is interested to do to reach out to do it you know awesome. um Carl, I hope uh, you know sometime again in the in the near future we can sit down and, and continue the conversation. Um, I need to bite and chew on some of this stuff a little bit, and then allow the natural progression of time to go on and just see what happens over the next few months and see kind of where you're at and where I'm at. But I know for sure already, I'd definitely love to to get you on and either expand on 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 what we talked about today, or or you know maybe expand on some new concepts in the future. But um, yeah, again, I, I can't say thank you enough. Thank you so much for uh, you know taking the time and, and spending your time uh, here with me today. It's you know yeah. I, I appreciate it a lot. So thank you. My, my my pleasure. I mean, I guess this is what I I live for is moments uh, where I get to connect with people like yourself who are out there doing their thing, uh, thinking about it, wanting to evolve, and I mean just being included feels special to me so yeah. it's it, it's cool thank you for lending your platform and allowing me to share my voice and some of my thinking and um without any expectations uh i'm just going to say that i trust that some of that which was shared here could potentially plant some seeds or shift oh, yeah. people's minds to to think in a way that maybe gives them a little bit more uh joy and access to yeah greater levels of performance if that is what people are seeking yeah i, I think it will i think people cool. definitely will and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the feedback and um me too <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to to doing it again so thank you awesome thank you i hear chat the noise too quick stop for the talking i hear chat with the boys so tough but must keep caution